0: Welcome to Enemy of the Surveillance State, where we discuss news, tips, and open-source tools to help you protect your privacy in an age of mass digital surveillance. I am your host, C. Mitchell Shaw, and joining me today is my special guest, Murray Hunter, also known as grown-up number 474-D8B50, author of the book, Boris the Baby Bot, a little book about big data. We're going to discuss surveillance. Children and the whole idea of surveillance capitalism this week on enemy of the surveillance state Well, welcome to the show, Murray. I'm really, really stoked to have you here today. Um, So you're from South Africa.
1: Yeah, I'm uh, speaking to you from Cape Town, uh, from the back room in my house. And it's kind of funny because this would have seemed like a really long distance conversation. But at this point, this is the same way I speak to someone who lives, you know, half a kilometer away from my house. Exactly.
0: Um, Welcome to the the new normal, they keep calling it. I I want my old normal back, but whatever. Uh, so what's the weather like in Cape Town today?
1: Uh, it is getting to be our winter because we're a different hemisphere. So it's getting cold, um, which is why I'm in a hoodie. Um, in fact, I'm on. A, I'm in an InfoSec hoodie. This is from Thinkst, uh, uh, a uh, local digital security firm, which has uh, developed this really cool thing called Canary Tok- Tokens, which is a way for you to upload like a kind of uh, booby-trapped file onto your server. So if anyone opens it and downloads it. It pings you. Um, nice. Anyway, sorry. That was no, why no. I, I'm wearing a-
0: warm clothes because it is cold in Cape Town. And I just turned off my air conditioner to record this. So how about that? So, so your book, uh, and I came across this, this was actually, um, there was a guy that supports me on Patreon. He supports the show on Patreon and I really appreciate it. Uh, so he reached out to me to say, Hey, there's this guy that's written this children's book. I I helped fund that because you you crowdfunded the the book, correct? That's correct. Yep. So so a, a supporter that we have in common, thank God to the internet. I I love the the whole idea of the community of the internet. Cause I would have never, you know, I might have stumbled across you on Twitter or something. And then I might not have. But this guy just reaches out to me. He's like, hey, Mitch, um, you really probably ought to see if you can interview him.
1: And yeah, so mean, sorry, I didn't mean to. No, you. go ahead. Well, we're going to be speaking a lot about the perils of the internet, right? And I think that's maybe what you were hinting at is we're going to be talking about all the things that make this a dreadful and scary place. But uh, certainly my book wouldn't have ever existed if the internet uh, wasn't there. I mean, it was funded through this crowdfunding campaign that uh, people contributed, about 250 folks from across the world contributed. We've got a bunch of people from the States, from Europe, from Japan, from New Zealand. uh, And that was just, that was for me, my first personal experience with this, this thing called the crowd, you know, uh, where oh, just yeah. a bunch of beautiful strangers like reach out and say, let's all make this thing together.
0: Yeah, it would be super easy, you know, when you just stare into the abyss of surveillance and, and uh, you know, for instance, so most of my show is about what I call the surveillance state proper. Uh, this episode is going to be a little different because we're going to be talking about what I like to call the incestuous relationship between the surveillance state proper and these surveillance companies like Google, Facebook, Microsoft, et cetera, uh, that all make their money by harvesting people's data. Uh, so this will be a little different because we're not going to be talking about the NSA, the CIA, uh, you know, GCHQ, or any of those surveillance state entities, but instead talking about Uh, the idea of surveillance capitalism. And it's really easy if you just stare into the abyss of that to be like, oh, to heck with this. I'm done. I'm getting rid of my smartphone. I'm throwing my laptop in the trash and I'm just going to go live on an island somewhere, you know, be a Luddite and avoid technology for the rest of my life. But hey, man, I love the Internet. Like, seriously, I've got an EFF sticker on my laptop that says I, well, it says EFF, you know, like I F, (laughs) but it's got the heart symbol because it's the Electronic Frontier Foundation EFF. I heart the internet because I man, I do. I I just think the internet is, um, you know, it's like any other community. Uh, you've got good parts of town and bad parts of town. You've got good people and bad people. And, uh, so today we're going to talk a little bit about sort of how we introduced these ideas to kids and Murray, your book, I think is a great way to do that because before the show, you and I were discussing like sort of my idea that our our generation are the first generation of real internet parents. So in Ed Stone's book, Permanent Record, he talks about, uh, you know, kind of being raised on the internet, but, but even still his baby pictures existed in a book, an actual photo album, right? And he says in the, in his book that ours is the first generation of of kids, the kids that are coming up right now are going to be the first generation that, that that have never not had a digital footprint. So that that made me think because I mean, there's a lot of places you can go with that. And you and I talked about some of this before the show. Like you said, you know, it's not your place to interpose yourself between parents and their children and tell them what they should or should not be teaching their children, or uh, you know, don't use Google or, or any of that stuff. And I agree, it's not it's not my place. It's not your place to tell people how to raise their kids. But I think those of us who've been paying attention to this can offer, you know, some words of advice, but it really needs to be low level kind of hands off advice to say, Hey, look, here's, here's how I see this. And it's your job to sort it out. It's your job uh, as parents uh, in the 21st century to figure out how we're going to introduce these ideas to our kids. Because, you know, if you go to your eight year old son and you just dump all of this on him all at once, have him read Ed Snowden's book and watch citizen four, um, probably not the best approach, right? Like your kid's never going to want to leave his room. You go in there and he's got tin foil up on the walls, right? That would be the appropriate response from an eight or nine year old. Uh, so our job as parents is to kind of inform our children about this, like we do about everything else at age appropriate levels. And so enter Boris, the baby bot, uh, before I get into what the book is, Murray, where the heck did this idea come from?
1: So I, uh, I have, my background is in activism. Um, I'm part of an activist group here in South Africa, which uh, is called the Right to Know campaign, which does a lot of freedom of information and civil liberties work, kind of in communities. And part of what we had started to focus on was our own sort of mini issues of state surveillance. So it's not big stuff like what you've got with your NSA and your FBI and 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 and, and, and all seventeen intelligence agencies. But we have problems with the way that the security parts of the state have started to encroach into democratic places, right? And so people who are protesting for basic rights, protesting for better policies and for, you know, often just for their livelihoods are being treated as national security threats. And so I was part of a small group of activists that started to focus more on this our little thing of the surveillance state and figuring out what are they up to? How are they doing this? What are the laws and rules that they apply to themselves and how can we hold them more accountable. Um you know and, and 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 it's the challenge there, and you're talking about this all the time, is about making these invisible things visible to people, like drawing these secret processes out from the shadow, because you can't get people to engage with a problem until they've seen the problem. And by its nature this is a secret and invisible problem to most people most of the time. So that was my starting point. And there's lots of reasons why it's a very inspiring work. It's very important work. And it's, it's work that is important to me, but it is also very depressing. Uh, and you can often, I can often feel like I've been bashing my head against the wall and trying the same things again and again, and trying to convince people who've got a list of 20 things that they desperately care about or worry about, and trying to get this onto that list is very difficult. So a confluence of things happened. Uh, and the one is that I burnt out. And the other is that I needed, I felt like I needed to try something different, a different approach to starting a conversation about these issues. And I'm not exactly sure how it came to be, but the thought came about, what if you started speaking to children instead of grown-ups about this? What would that look like? Uh, and the idea of a children's book that looked like the magic of a children's story applied to one of the most serious and scary and important issues of the day. I don't know what it was, but something about that tickled me. And that was how I came to you know, start to wonder what a children's book about this would look like. And I came up with the idea of a baby tracking robot called Boris.
0: Yeah, so Boris the baby bot is, uh, as you just said, a baby tracking robot. So I'm looking at the very, very first page of the book. Uh, It shows a factory and then uh, like a line of words, very, very typical to a baby book or or a, a book for young children. And this is just great the way you did this. Uh, kind of meanders all around the page over to the next page. And it says Boris, the baby pot is sent from the factory to track all the babies. So, so this, this is the idea of surveillance capitalism, the idea that there are companies that, um, and I addressed this in the very first episode of the show. And if if you're listening to this and you've not heard that, that is why surveillance matters, even if you have nothing to hide. So something even as innocuous as your grocery store rewards card is being used to gather all sorts of information, all sorts of data about you and create a startlingly accurate profile of who you are and what you do. Not just your shopping patterns, but where you go in the store, where you go outside the store, because they can tie that to your mobile phone. Um, and so the idea of surveillance capitalism uh, it's not anti-capitalist. Uh, so a few weeks ago, I had Todd Weaver on from Purism talking about the Librem 5 smartphone. And, uh, you know, Todd Todd decries the evils of surveillance capitalism. But Todd is a capitalist. I'm a capitalist. I, I believe uh, in in the capitalist system. Uh, but, you know, surveillance capitalism is not opposed to capitalism. Uh, or the, being anti-surveillance capitalism does not mean you're anti-capitalist. It means, essentially, that you're anti-surveillance and i think this book does a great job you know so going through page after page of this and it's very well done i i have to say seriously murray like did you do the illustrations yes i did i mean that was it didn't have to be that way i just wanted to wow it's very very well done uh you you've got a a rare talent seriously uh so when i read through the story um you know this this Boris the baby bot his, his his job is to go and collect all of the information he can on babies to create this profile on them now the book does not get into the nitty-gritties of this right it doesn't get into the scary side of this at all is that correct Murray
1: yeah i mean it was it, it, i was also trying to balance things because on one hand as i said i'm trying to come up with a visual language that could introduce kids and their families to the concept of how technology has a life outside of your home. The technology you have in your home is also exchanging information with places out there, companies out there, the the company that made that technology. And those exchanges might not always be things that you're particularly happy about if you knew that it was happening. So I was trying to come up with a visual language for this thing that we're calling surveillance capitalism. But at the same time, as important as that is, it can, if you just tell someone, hey, I'm writing a children's book about surveillance capitalism, it sounds a little crazy. And I think more yeah. than a few parents would hear that and think, doesn't sound like a book I'd particularly like to, to give to my kid. That sounds scary. And so finding the balance between looking at these important issues, but also not making it scary, not making it feel like a dangerous topic was quite important to me. So instead of, you know, this device is a, is a lovable-ish looking robot. It's got squiggly yeah. arms and like slightly wonky eyes. And it collects information about babies for thing you know, to to make decisions about those babies, about who's a good baby and who's a bad baby. And the good baby gets rewards. I can't remember what it was, like an ice cream or something like that. Um, uh, uh, And the bad baby uh, kind of, you know, doesn't get those rewards. And um, so we're trying to figure out how these industries would work, how they would make money, how they, they would make decisions about you that you might not agree with. Yeah, and it's been really interesting to see how people have embraced it. You know, as much as it sounds like a scary topic, I have found so much support for this idea because I think parents are worried about this. It's one of the things about the future that we are raising our kids into that people really worry about. And I think especially in the last few years with you know Cambridge Analytica and really seeing the extent to which the technologies that we've invited into our private lives have sometimes are just not our friends.
0: Oh, exactly. No. And, and, and one of the things that I really, really, really like about your book is that it is, it's a conversation starter. It's, this is not intended to be like a textbook. Like this is going to teach my kid what he needs to know about surveillance or, or even surveillance capitalism. But it's the idea that here, like you say, this very cute robot. I mean, he's like I don't know if you've got a toy line out or anything, man, but you ought to think about like, I could actually buy the official Boris, the baby bot. Like that would be pretty awesome. Uh, I don't know what the logistics on that would look like. So maybe I never said that. Um, but, and of course then, boy, you could have like tracking stuff. And now I'm just kidding about that part. <laughs> it um, would take a special kind of capitalist to make all that happen. Yeah. Dude, there's some money to be made here. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he's a very, very, funny, enjoyable read. And so the idea is that it starts off with, with Boris tracking all these babies, but there's this one baby that Boris just can't track and it's driving him crazy uh, because that's his job. His job is to track these babies. And so that could be left just at that level right now. So that kids just have some vague understanding way in the background somewhere that this is happening. But, but more than that, the parents that are reading this, would you agree that it's probably going to, Make them to think maybe a little harder about the technology that they're bringing into their homes and around their children.
1: I look, that's been my experience, and of course, the kinds of people who reach out to this kind of book are the people who are already having those concerns. Uh, But it is interesting, you know. I get messages from parents to say, "Hey, you know, how do I solve this problem I'm having?" Or I'm worried about Google Photos. So I do think that it has worked as a conversation starter, and that's been really interesting and fun. But the reason, I mean, there's a few reasons why I wanted only to start that conversation. And the first is, you mentioned it earlier, that every household is going to have its own approach to this. There is not a single right way of doing this. In fact, most of the time, we're just trying to choose the least worst option in terms of our technology. Um, you know, it, it, you know, and you, you will often feel like you're losing uh, because you can create a VPN but there's a software vulnerability over here. Or, you know, you can uh, use encrypted messaging on your cell phone, but your cell phone is constantly pinging a cell phone tower in order to just be a cell phone. You know, so so it can often feel like you're failing. And I think being a parent is already the hardest job in the world. And uh, there are already millions of experts out there waiting to tell you why the decisions you're making as a parent are the wrong ones. And I was not keen to join the line on that one. Um, so what I was just trying to do was create, as, a, as you said, a platform where parents can start to figure these things out, start to have the conversation, to start making a few choices that they might feel are the right ones for their family. And so there's a, there's a, as a small concession to that, there's a list of resources that I compiled uh, on the book's website, which is boristhebabybot.org, which just sort of compile the kind of best in class, digital security manuals for the parents and then you know a few conversation items for kids like there's you know some resources that have been compiled by universities to get kids of a certain age to start to think about their digital footprint you know just i'm not saying i wrote well i wrote the book on this but um i (laughs) I can't you know it's it's such a huge issue i couldn't ever pretend to have the answers to parents but i'm just saying look if you want to start looking for those answers this is a way to start here's a few resources that might get you further down the road and also just to be compassionate with ourselves, because even the foremost security experts in the world are trying to find the right answers. And most of the time they're coming up short. So, so be forgiving for when we do fall short, but realizing that every day we're going to try something new to claim a little bit of that privacy for our future.
0: So this book is available on the internet. So your, your website is uh, boristhebabybot.org. And can my listeners go there and find this book?
1: absolutely i mean there's there's a i will say that that shipping has become a slightly complicated thing in the time of a pandemic um as a one person operation but yeah, a lot of people have bought the book online it's available um in South African bookstores only and on Amazon only in the u k so I've kind of had to navigate as someone in the global south had to navigate the sort of maze like process of trying to sell something uh, across the world when you know a lot of these systems are set up to be for people who live in the States, as an example. But it's been, despite all of that, it's been really great to see how this book, as I said, could not have existed without the internet and without the people on it.
0: Oh, no doubt. Your idea was that you're not trying to give, be the end all, be all on, here's what you need to do to protect your children from surveillance, but just to get a conversation started. And see, for me, I had to launch a whole podcast to talk about this because it can't be done in 30 minutes or an hour or even 10 hours. I mean, I could write a book on the topic, but by the time that book is in its third printing, it's probably obsolete because this is a moving target. And, um, you know, all of that can't be fleshed out. Even I, I don't think in a book and I probably will eventually write a book about many of the things that I discuss on this show. Um, but the reason I launched a podcast is because I can stay up to the moment we can talk about what's going on this week or next week or the following week in the surveillance world with, and, and you talked earlier about the 17 different intelligence agencies here that I typically just refer to as the alphabet groups, right? You know, because they're all three letters, you know, NSA, CIA, whatever, till you get into BATFE, but that's, you know, they're the redheaded stepchild of all of this. Um, and they've, they've earned that, uh, that title, but your book, um, So the idea here is that children are just reading a fun book. They're just reading a fun book, but it gets them to think about, it plants sort of a seed of uh, something that they can continue to think about age appropriately, and the parents can continue these conversations age appropriately as the kids move on. Would that be correct?
1: That's exactly right. I mean, The idea was that if I had to choose between sugar and medicine, I would go with the sugar. Um, but I do hope there's a little bit of medicine in there. And so it was an attempt to create a story that could be two things to two different readers. So to to some people, it's just a fun story about a robot that can't track babies for some reason. Um, and for others, they, they can see the bigger, bigger story, the bigger metaphor there and are really energized by it. And, you know, and it's interesting to think if i had set out to write a different book if i'd set out to write a book for grown-ups um i don't think i would have ever been able to get people behind that idea you know it's like if people think that's a good thing and you know you know i'm glad that you're doing that and god be with you but what happened with this is i set out i didn't know whether this was an idea that had any cachet is that a word um it is now but yeah i didn't know if this was an idea <laughs> Um, I didn't know if this was an idea that people would get behind, and at some point, I just thought, "Look, let me put it on the put it on Indiegogo and see what happens." And I gave myself—I figured I would need about six thousand dollars US to print this thing. I said, "I'll give it a month and see what happens." And within two days, I think I was forty percent or fifty percent of the way, uh, and it was—it it just like it, it, you know, people got behind it in a way I never expected. And it made me realize that there's something about the magic of speaking to children that people really liked about it uh, because hey, it's a scary world. And we all are trying to figure out this problem together. Absolutely.
0: Uh, so, you know, I, I'll disagree with you on one minor point there. You said, you know you don't know if you'd written a, this book for adults, if people would have gotten behind it. Um, I've been super, super happy with how people have gotten behind this podcast. I mean, I'm just a guy uh, now I'm a guy who has spent a decade Uh, researching and learning to practice uh, what I think are the best practices for protecting my own privacy, the privacy of my family, things like that. Uh, But I am just a guy. And, you know, I came out of nowhere. Like when I launched this podcast, February 7th, so three months ago, uh, nobody had heard of me. Uh, Now we're going up on four months now. Okay. I need to keep track of time. Uh, You know, nobody in this space had heard of me. I write for the New American Magazine. I'm a former coordinator for the John Birch Society. I've written some articles for some other publications. But in this space, I was relatively unknown. And I just put it out there and said, hey, guys, I'm going to be doing this podcast. I've been thinking about it for about three years. Uh, And finally, my wife very wisely said to me, hey, you know that podcast you keep talking about? I said, yeah. She said, would you either just do that or be quiet about it? (laughs) Right. So I said, "Okay, I guess I'll do it. Uh, And, you know, people have gotten behind it. I mean, I'm beginning to gain some Patreon support. If you're listening to this, you're not supporting yet on Patreon, uh, there'll be a link in the show notes. I'm also going to put a link to um, uh, Murray's uh, website in the show notes so you can go and find this book. Is it available for download, Murray? That is a good question. It should be.
1: Uh, It should be for eBooks, but I I might have to fix that after this interview just to make sure. It is a Creative Commons uh, book, incidentally, so if you have an e-copy, Technically, you can do whatever you want with it. So, and that was also quite important to me is I figured if people are putting, if this is a book that everyone agrees is good for everyone and all important, you know, it, it, it's not just a product, it's it's a, it's a an idea that we want to see spreading around the world, is making sure that people could share it without worrying about copyright and stuff like that was important to me.
0: No, absolutely. Uh, for something like this, it would be very difficult to, um, to limit that to just something that a person could only buy uh, in a copyrighted and protected form. It was really important, I think for you to get this out there to where anybody can get their hands on it. If you want a physical copy of it, you're going to have to buy it, but it is available for download and as an ebook. And uh, so, yeah, I'll put a link there along with the, uh, the Patreon link uh, and a link to my merch store because you know, like I, so Murray, you're wearing your uh, InfoSec t-shirt. I'm wearing my enemy of the surveillance state t-shirt. And if any of the listeners want to get one of those, I'll put a link uh, in the show notes to where you can find that. So, this book, uh, what, what kind of distribution have you seen? How, how many copies uh, physical copies have, have you sold? like a, uh, the hard yeah, copy
1: not, not a huge number, I would say about a thousand max if I had to guess. I printed 2,000 and I've got excuse me I printed 2500 and I've got a stack of them left. Uh, okay. and uh, you know it was it, one of the things that ended up happening is that yeah the the, the international distribution is a very one-man operation. Uh, So people are taking it over um, in suitcases as the, you know, like just friends and families they are traveling around, they take it over in suitcases and they ship it uh, on their travels, which has been another amazing thing that's happened. But uh, it does mean it's slow to move books. Uh, So if anyone wants to put in an order for 500, you know, make me an offer. Uh, (laughs) No, but I'm teasing. Like it's basically, you know, on a more serious note, once um, the pandemic came and I just realized like, oh, people got other priorities, including myself. I sort of took this off the back, took the, put this onto the back burner, but I, I do want to make sure that the book gets out there. And so one of the things that I'd be interested in exploring is if there's any digital rights groups that want this, uh, that want to give this to their members or to communities or to libraries, I'd be happy to make it available to them. Um, and, and also that, you know, we're talking about capitalism, but honestly, profit is not my primary agenda. It's actually just getting the story out there.
0: Yeah. It's, it's kind of a strange uh, mix sometimes though. Cause like you were talking about the pandemic. So when I first launched this show, I mean, I knew like, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a husband and a father. I'm a writer. I convert alcohol, nicotine, and caffeine into words and sell them for pennies a piece to keep a roof over my family's head. I knew taking on this project, uh, was, you know, this podcast was going to be some time consuming. So I knew I would have to offset that some. So I did launch the Patreon. I did launch a, a line of merch But I very insensitively did it right after the pandemic broke out, right? (laughs) So I I probably looked a little like a jerk there, like, hey, I know you're all locked down at home and figuring out how you're going to pay the rent next month, but hey, throw me 20 bucks on Patreon. I'd really appreciate it. So I've been really careful to say to to the people that listen to the show, look, if you're at home uh, because of the pandemic or you have lost your job because of the pandemic, if your financial situation has changed for the worse because of this, I don't want your support. But I, I do hope that you'll like and share the show because the purpose of the show really is to help other people understand the principles that we're discussing and and I like the phrase uh, that I came up with friends don't let friends get spied on right uh which um you know I think is it, it sort of communicates the idea that like if I care about you as a person uh, I need to be sharing information with you, not, not to be that, uh, well, actually guy, now, nobody likes the well, actually guy, you know, the guy, every time you say something, he goes, well, actually, you know, I don't want you to be that guy. But at the same time, you know, if you hear something in an episode that, you know, like, oh, you know, Chuck or Jill, they would, they would really, uh, they could gain something from hearing this, share the show with them, you know, share it on Facebook, give it a good review, help, help spread the message. But if you're in a position to support, you know, I do want people to support. So, like for you, I mean, I know maybe profit uh, off of your book was not the the end all be all. But if somebody offered you, uh, you know, twenty dollars for a copy of the book, uh, you'd sell it to them, and then you turn that twenty dollars into something else that you could use to push this message further forward. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it is,
1: it is something where it's a good point because I've often because this is a passion project, I've often had to be reminded by supporters, you know, by people who backed the 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 crowdfunding campaign that. There is value to this that, you know, and people are saying, hey, look, we want to support the value that we see in this project. And I definitely think with just going to an earlier point you made is that it's it's really important, as an example, your podcast, um, that we always find the balance between saying, okay, this is these are tough times. And you would never ask someone who's going through a tough time uh, to kind of make a financially difficult decision for themselves. But finding the balance between making sure that people are part of these discussions and also that, you know, that. The artists shouldn't stop. Like the, the the work that goes into producing a discussion like this has
0: value. Yeah, there is value in this. And part of the proof of concept for you was that 250 people pulled out their credit cards and supported your book. Uh, part of the proof of concept for me is that I have a, a growing number of patrons and I have sold some merchandise. You know, people want to support things that they believe in. You just have to give them something that really does have value I think your book has tremendous value. Uh, I, I can see a place for this book in libraries, public libraries, where people can check this out and bring it home to their children. I can see this wrapped up with a you know pretty wrapping paper and a nice little bow for someone's you know second birthday or or something like that. I mean, this is it's a well done book. Now, I've never held a physical copy of it because I live in the United States and uh, you know I can't just walk down to to Barnes and Noble or Books a Thousand or whatever and buy one of these. I live in a small town, so it's books a thousand. Everybody else has books a million, uh, but so you know, I, I can't do that. But but the copy that you sent me to to preview before this episode um, of the show, you know, I'm looking at it, and it's it's very well done. I can see this on you know heavy card stock is probably the way it's printed, uh, and man, it's just it's a good looking book. It's got real value. It's cleverly written. It's it's uh, cutely, if that's a word, cutely illustrated. Uh, and I can see children just enjoying the colors and the feel and the look of this book and taking in sort of this fun message that as you say, could be very, very dark, but you manage somehow to keep it light. You keep it fun. Uh, and it, I think it's a great educational tool and there's a lot of value in what, what you've done here. And I hope, I hope there'll be more of this. I hope there's going to be a, uh, a sequel or something like that. Uh, you know, I could see, um, I could see people taking this conversation and going with it. And I'm really, really impressed by what you've done here,
1: Murray. Well, I don't know if people can hear blushing over a podcast, but that's very kind. Thank you. (laughs) Um, The question of shifting to these companies, what you call the incestuous, what what was it? The
0: incestuous relationship? The incestuous relationship between like Google and Facebook and what have you and say the NSA, CIA, FBI. So.
1: Well, I thought maybe, you know, to talk a little bit about how I got onto the companies themselves, right? And so
0: the first is obviously for most
1: people, they're more worried, like their interactions with surveillance technology is often with a consumer product, primarily, you know, they're not thinking about the NSA or um, the Five Eyes, they're thinking about Facebook or Google or Apple, or Amazon or whatever. Exactly. Um, but an interesting thing from an international perspective is that you know the NSA and GCHQ spy on me because I am even though I'm here down in South Africa, I'm not of any interest to in them that I know of, but I do have digital communication that's going across these kind of global you're sort of going down the pipes of the internet, pipes and tubes, and they're siphoning all of that stuff that they can, irrespective of you know whether I am uh, in a terrorist group or uh, a guy in a hoodie sitting in his you know in his back study. But what's interesting is outside of the of, of the kind of global north, you know, Europe, UK, um, the US, a lot of us live in countries where actually the states are not as powerful as international corporations. Now you can you can look at the states, and I'm sure if you're someone who follows the regulatory processes around big tech, it sometimes feels like the US government is not more powerful than the tech companies. But if you go into most parts of Africa, uh, uh, Asia, Latin America, the technology companies are probably more powerful and powerful than those national governments and their intelligence agencies. So for me, coming from someone who was very focused on my state and its surveillance practices, shifting to the private sector, to the global private sector became important because I suddenly realized like I was focusing on this, on the small fry guys. You know, and, and as you said, there's an incestuous relationship, no matter where you are. Or in in some cases, like a Google and China, there's like a it's kind of like a there's a there's an unhappy alliance there. Um, but definitely, these companies and their states are, are, are interacting all the time. But from a global perspective, you realize that a lot of these these companies are more powerful than a, than than any state structure. And, um, and they can't get voted out of power, right? You, you can, because you we can keep, vote with because we keep
0: voting. Well, we keep voting for them with our pocketbooks. We mm. stand in line to buy the newest device. Uh, we, we go and work all week to, to have enough money to go and buy the device that we're going to install in our homes or carry on our bodies to allow them to spy on us. It's like we've out, we've out 1984'd 1984, 1984, uh, big brother's not forcing these devices into us, uh, into our homes we go out and buy them. And, and again, all of that, I'm not anti-tech. I'm just anti-tech surveillance. Just like I'm not anti-police. I'm just anti-police state. Uh, I'm anti-surveillance state. The the name of the show is after all enemy of the surveillance state. Uh, so no, you make an interesting point there though, uh, that, that in a lot of these ways, these companies are more powerful than, than the States. Uh, I, I don't, I don't think that's, Probably true here in the U.S. Our our state is way too powerful, um, uh, given the construct of our constitution that is supposed to have limited it way shorter than where we find it now. But um, you know, part of it is that like we look at something like the Prism project, uh, the, the you know the the program that uh, Ed Snowden revealed uh, with his all of his NSA leaks to the journalists. Key players for Prism: Google, Microsoft, Apple. You know, so like you're carrying around that iPhone because you're like, oh, it's at least I'm not using Google. Well, okay, but Apple was in bed and is probably still in bed with the NSA and helping to to harvest your data. And sure, Apple took this big stand uh, in, uh, you know, a couple of years ago in the FBI versus Apple case over Saeed Farouk's phone. And I think Apple was on the right side of that issue. I don't take exception with them there. Just to say all of a sudden it was in their best interests to protect their product and they sold it to the American people in terms of protecting my privacy. But they'd already shown by their participation in PRISM that my privacy is certainly not their biggest priority.
1: Sure. And, you know, it's, it's interesting when you think about it from, I mean, I think what you're saying is right, is that often as individual consumers, we're making a choice, right? So being on Facebook often is a very, very, it's, a, it's an easily avoidable problem. Uh, not always. You know, for 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 example, if you live in certain parts of the developing world, being on Facebook is sometimes the only way that you get access to the internet because, like Facebook's basic uh, program. So it's you know, like if you live in a in a pretty rundown part of the world, sometimes if you want to get connected to society at all, you have to use these products. But in other cases, people have less choice. So e-learning, as an example, like um, Microsoft and Google are the big kind of international players on providing digital learning tools to government education programs. Now, you can vote out the government for putting Microsoft and Google uh, software into your schools without your consent, but it would be, you know, like on the hierarchy of needs, uh, probably that's not the biggest thing you're worried about. You're worried about, like, you know, running water, decent highways, medical system, jobs, et cetera, et cetera. But what's kind of interesting is that when... A lot of these companies realize that maybe they're in the develop, in the developed world. Their customers have become a lot more standoffish, which is kind of what seems to have happened with Facebook. That North Americans are much less comfortable on Facebook now than they were in twenty, uh, much less comfortable now than they were in twenty sixteen. So these guys think, you know, what? We'll shift to a new marketplace. We'll go make deals with those governments, not with their citizens, but with those governments, or we'll go exactly. find poorer users in the third world and we'll give him something that feels like it's for free. Uh, and and, and yeah. that's
0: what I mean by the incestuous relationship. So we've got, you know, they're not making deals, like you say, with, with the citizens, they're making deals with the governments of those systems. And there's something in it for the governments of those systems. So like for me, and, and, and you're right, Facebook is probably one of the most easily avoided things. I had avoided Facebook for years, uh, burned everything to the ground, uh, delete. Uh, first, I, I downloaded all of my stuff, right, which took forever and a half because I'd been using Facebook for years by that point. Uh, but I finally got to the point right after the Cambridge Analytica thing, because i had been writing about this kind of stuff for years, but I was still on Facebook. And I finally just had to stop and ask myself the, the real pertinent question, sort of the pivotal question. How can I continue now in the face of this evidence? How can I, Mitchell Shaw, continue to have a relationship with a company whose sole job is to harvest my data and use it to manipulate me, use it to manipulate elections or whatever else. Right. So I got all my stuff off. I deleted my account, burned everything to the ground, walked away, was never going to look back. And then I launched a podcast about surveillance. Right. So then I was, I was like, gosh, like I, I don't want to be that guy that launches a, a podcast that I think by the way is great, but of course I make it. So of course I think that Right. I don't want to be the guy that launches that podcast and then zero people listen to it because zero people know about it. Like my, you know, my closest friends or what have you, you they're going to listen to it, but they get to hear this over beers on Saturday, you know, when we're grilling chicken or whatever. So, you know, why have a podcast if no one's going to listen to it? So, you know, I had to brainstorm about, man, how am I going to get this message out? And I kept coming back to Facebook and going, darn it. You know, I just don't want to do that. So I had to, and I've been real open on Facebook. Uh, with the fact that I am approaching the day, I don't know when it will be when, again, I get to burn it to the ground. When my, when this show has enough listeners that it's beginning to grow under its own steam and I don't have to be at the keyboard all the time, reminding people to download an episode or, Hey, just posted a new episode. When I've got enough subscribers that are doing that, that work for me, you know, at the water cooler at work and at the dinner table. And when they're hanging out with friends you know, when they're doing that for me, I look forward to the day that I get to publicly burn my Facebook account again, and this time never look back. Now, having said that, I take extreme cautions. I've only got one browser that I will open Facebook in. I've got that browser locked down tight as a drum. I do everything out over a VPN. I, I'm, I'm taking the steps that I can take, but I don't fool myself into thinking those steps are 100%.
1: Yeah, so. and, but I mean, I think that's the kind of everyone is having to make those difficult choices. Um, and that, that's another reason why having a compassionate approach to this, to say, these are your options. The, you know, these are the limitations of each of these options, and none of them is perfect. is so important because one of the things that can happen in focusing on surveillance activism is that it can feel like losing is the only option. And right. that creates a fatalism. Uh, which, which, which ultimately is so defeating because instead when people don't know which of the worst options to choose, sometimes they just do nothing. Uh,
0: Absolutely. You know, there's the old adage, when in, when in question, when in doubt, run in circles, scream and shout, right? Like (laughs) I'm not going to make a decision. Ah, you know, I'm just lost over here. Woe is us. But there are decisions they can make. And like you say, sometimes perhaps choosing the least worst option is your best option. At least. In the short term, uh, you know, my the, the purpose of this show is to get people thinking about uh, this topic and to propose what I have found to be the best solutions. Now, there's a, a couple of schools of thought in in this space, in the space of advising people about this kind of thing. The Electronic Frontier Foundation, for example, tremendous respect for them. I love uh, what they're doing to combat this type of thing. I don't agree with them on everything, but on this, I agree with them 100 percent. Um, their, their approach is never, ever recommend a particular product because you don't know that that product might change in the future. You don't know that there's not an actually already a better product. I don't take that school of thought. There are things that I have used and I've looked at very closely that I've talked to people who understand it better than I do that have said, no, 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 this is a solid tool. Like for instance, for me, uh, if Ed Snowden is comfortable using the signal app, and it's an open source project that anyone can verify that it does exactly what they say it does, I am comfortable using Signal for my texts, and I recommend Signal. I recommend Proton Mail. I recommend Proton VPN. I'm not compensated for that in any way at all. I made the decision early on in this show to be listener-supported, not ad-supported, because if I tell somebody that I trust a particular product, I want them to know that it's because I actually trust it, not because I just cashed a check from the guy that makes that product. So, um, you know, I do recommend, and I'm, I'm glad to know that in the prologue or epilogue of your book, uh, you recommend sort of, you know, continued sources, like here's some places you can go to look at maybe some best practices. Do you recommend any, anything in particular, or is it just really, uh, sort of a, a low level general idea?
1: That's an interesting question. I mean, actually, you mentioned the EFF. Uh, if you go to the resources on the website, one of the places I send the grownups to say, okay, here's some stuff for your kids. Um, the EFF surveillance self defense guide is one of the best uh, starting points that I've come across. Um, oh, it really is. And and uh, in and fact, in one, fact, I'm going
0: to put a link to that in the show yeah, notes for absolutely. the listeners.
1: And one of the you know one of the approaches that they take, as you as you know, is that they don't recommend anything. You know, they they just say take this. Do a threat assessment of yourself. What am I trying to protect against? Whom? Uh, w- you know, what are their capabilities? What are the consequences if I fail? And how much inconvenience, or how much am I willing to change in order to to accomplish all these goals? And the answer for me is going to be different to the answer for you, or for most listeners, for most parents and their kids. You know, so so for example, I use the Signal app, uh, but I know that for a lot of, I, I also have WhatsApp for all of its problems. Um, because in South Africa, most people are on WhatsApp. And for example, for community organizers to say, hey, everyone, migrate away from where the whole community is and use Signal, which does have a few technical hitches on it as well. You know, like it's, there is a cost and a benefit to, to every single product or, or platform or software. Signal is the one where I can say, you know, the pros are pretty clear. There's very little room for failure. And if you get stuck, you can always switch over to something else temporarily. Exactly, uh, I, I because I have had times.
0: Out, I have, I've had times with Signal where a server goes down, or I get a borked update, or whatever it just happened to my wife. We're driving back from uh, visiting some family over the weekend, and she had let her pro her Signal app expire, so I had to you know upgrade to the newest one, which meant because her phone sucks, I had to uh, delete you know a whole bunch of stuff just to make room for this update. Then I get the update, and Signal kept crashing. I had to go in and wipe the cache and get it back up and running. And it was fine. I was able to do that. But for, you know, I did think just in that moment, gosh, another user right now would have to switch to another app while they uninstalled this and reinstalled it because you're out of comms. You're not going to get texts. If this is on Android, you can make that your only text app. Uh, iPhone, it it acts as a supplementary app. Uh, But for Android, you can make it, and we have made it our only text app. So when it goes down for us, we're just out of comms and it's, it's, uh, it's inconvenient, particularly if, you know, you're out somewhere and really need to get in touch with somebody or, you know, Hey, I just went into labor or, you know, I, I hope that would be a phone call. Um, <laughs> but, but who knows, man, who knows? I know a woman, <laughs> I know a woman who while in labor had the laptop open on her belly, Updating Facebook while she was in active labor. So, you know, somebody might text, honey, I need you to come home. I'm in labor. It could happen. Uh, It shouldn't, but it could. Uh, So, yeah, but, but, you know, I I get you that there's, you have to do this cost benefits analysis. You have to ask yourself, how much trouble am I willing to go through? And my answer, because uh, I've spent so much time looking at this and it's so important to me, will be different than your answer. It will not be the same answer you come up with, but. For me, it really comes down to like, okay, first, what are the, what are the immediate things that we have to do? Like, uh, I would go so far as to say, if you've got an Amazon echo in your house, if if you can say, uh, Hey Alexa, and anything in your house answers you, you need to get rid of that. Uh, cause that thing is always listening. It is always spying on you. And when we talk about the incestuous relationship between the surveillance state and these companies, you have to realize that your security chain, your privacy chain is only as strong as its weakest link. If I'm with the NSA and this is in Ed Snowden's book, right? So if I'm with the NSA and I'm trying to surveil you, uh, I don't have to install anything. I just need to figure out whether you've already got something I can get into. And it's not just the NSA. It's it's, you know, back to your book and and, and sort of the, the the premise of your book. If I wanted Google to know everything going on in my life, if I want to Google reading my emails, I would have copied them on those emails. If I want to Google to see what's going on with my webcam right now, I would have invited them into this Jitsi call. Um, so, you know, it really comes down ultimately to, do I own the right, do I own the data? about me and my answer is yes i own that if i can't say yes to that then i am not a free man
1: yeah i mean it takes us i think for most ordinary civilians if you want it's a it's this conversation can become quite grim quite quickly Um, sure and it can as i said it can create this sense of of fatalism of like of paralysis of dread and absolutely that's why finding ways to talk about this that are fun. And whether it's a children's book, it's, it's like, a, a, like a conversational podcast, it's, you know, satire, these different things. These are such an important tool book uh, to creating societal change, uh, to, to changing people's minds. Because what I was reala- realizing as an activist is screaming at people, not necessarily literally, but not always, not literally, screaming <laughs> into people's faces about the end of the world wasn't winning over that many new people. A lot of people agree. A lot of people agree, but they can't put it on the top 10 list of things right. that they worry about. Um, and a lot of people just think, you know, Dude, you're going crazy. Back to the first question yeah. in your yeah. podcast, why should I worry? I don't have anything to hide.
0: Exactly. Because, you know, when it comes down to it, I like to say, uh, and, and this is a perfect opportunity. I don't know if I've ever said this on this show, uh, on this podcast, but there is a difference between eye contact and a piercing maniacal stare. And if you (laughs) sound crazy, it doesn't even matter if you're right. You just sound crazy. And somebody does not walk away from that conversation thinking, oh, I'm so glad I had that conversation with that very informed and articulate gentleman. They walk away going, dang, I finally met one, right? Like they call their wife and they're like, I just met a guy that is bat crap crazy. This guy is off his nut.
1: You know, I think I've been relatively blessed, um, but I did meet at least one or two people in the conceptual phases of Boris the Baby Bot who walked away thinking that they just had that encounter. You know, like back before there was a book to show someone when I said, hey, I'm working on this book about capitalism and surveillance and, you know, there's a robot and it's going to track babies and I'm drawing it myself. Um, People just, like, there's just one or two people who went, oh, and that was oh, how about that. The conversation. Would you look at that?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, um, I, I fortunately, um, I I'm 49 years old, so I've had some time in my life to sort of, uh, simmer down a little bit because I, I am a bit of a, a firebrand. Um, you know, speaking to, to my priest, once I used the expression, um, I'll, I'll burn that bridge when I come to it. And he said, Oh, Mitch, I think you mean you'll cross that bridge. And I said, no, 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 father, I, I'll burn that bridge when I come to it. That, I said exactly what I meant. Um, but I have simmered down some, you know, I've gotten to a place where I realized that, uh, you know, like you said about your book, if you had to choose between sugar and medicine, you chose sugar. And for what it's worth, uh, I think your book is, uh, so I'll use the sugar analogy and I'll say your book is very sweet, but there's, there's a good dose of medicine in there too. I think, I think that your book does a great job of uh, at least sparking a thought that maybe someone would not have had. And like you say, you know, the, the downside of this is, Um, the likelihood that somebody from my perspective, for my podcast, the likelihood that someone's just going to stumble across my podcast with my very ominous logo and a title like enemy of the surveillance state and be, Oh, I wonder what this is about. And listen to it with no idea what, where it's going. And then be like, Oh, that guy changed my mind. Probably not great by the same token. You know, people aren't going to go looking for a book, you know, somebody who doesn't already share our idea of the evils of a surveillance state is not likely going to go looking for a book about surveillance to give their toddler. It's probably not going to happen, but but somebody's over at one of those people's houses and sees the book on the shelf and pulls it off and looks at it. Or somebody buys this book and gives it to a niece or a nephew for their birthday or something like that. And your book is not, you know, there's no Uh, even, even when I go back and I look like the darkest page on your book, the darkest page on your book is the factory makes money by deciding who's a good baby and who's a bad baby. But even the, the evil people in this don't look evil. They're very cartoonish. It's very, I mean, they're clearly not nice people, but they're not scary at all. There's nothing in this book that a child is going to throw this book across the room and hide under his bed over. You know, it's, it's very well done.
1: Thank you very much. I mean, one of the one of the most amazing things is seeing how, I don't have kids myself yet. It's going to change pretty soon. Um, but seeing how kids, like, you know, there's just, there's a few kids that have really taken to this. And I get messages from parents that are just like, oh, we're reading this for the 30th time. And I feel so bad for the parents, but I feel so good for myself. You know, we've read this every night for the last five weeks or whatever like that. And uh, one of my proudest little moments is someone sent me a message to say that her two kids, maybe five and eight have a song that they've made about this book that they sing every day. And she says, I would love to send you a video of it, but they won't let me film (laughs) because they've taken the message. And I thought, Oh my gosh. Oh man. Good kids.
0: That is awesome. Now, you know what mom and dad could do is, is film that on the sly. But then if the kids ever find out you break down trust and now it's gone, you know, those, those kids are going to pack their stuff and leave. Uh, man, that is, <laughs> that's a great story. Oh man. Well, listen, it has been just truly, truly great having you on the show, man. I, I look forward to seeing uh, what your book does in the future. Uh, you know, so if somebody in the U S wants to get a hard copy of your book, uh, they can go to the website, they can order it. They're just going to have to wait uh, for it to arrive.
1: Yeah. yeah. So of, what I will say is that they can, everyone can order it. I'd be happy to send it to you. I'll be in touch, but, uh, things have become unpredictable with the pandemic. Um, yeah, so that's what I can say, but if it doesn't work out, you're welcome to reach out to me.
0: Well, man, God bless you. Thanks for being on the show and just keep doing what you do. Okay.
1: And thank you very much for having me. These are important discussions, man.
0: Absolutely. So for my listeners again, uh, you know, be sure to like and share this, give it a five star review on whatever episode or whatever platform where you listen to podcasts, uh, check out the links in the show notes for how to support us on Patreon or pick up any merch, check out the show notes. I'm going to put that, that link to the EFFs uh, guide in there, a link for uh, Murray's website. So you can pick up a copy of Boris, the baby bot, whether a physical copy or an ebook, whatever you want to do. And until next week, this has been Mitchell Shaw and Murray, uh, Murray, I knew your last name. Wow. Hunter Murray Hunter on enemy of the surveillance state. We'll see you next week.